Are you a mom or a mom-to-be looking for tips to make wearing your mom hat a little easier? Hoping to become as smart about motherhood as you can be? Then you've found the podcast that leaves you a little smarter than before every time you listen to one of our expert guests. I'm cognitive psychologist and child development specialist, Dr. Amy Moore. Join us on a quest to becoming a brainy mom. Hi, smart moms and dads. Welcome to another episode of the Brainy Moms podcast brought to you today by Learning RX Brain Training Centers. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Moore. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Jody Jedlicka, and we are coming to you today from Colorado Springs, Colorado. Dr. Jody and I are super excited to welcome our guest today, Dr. Uma Naidu. Dr. Naidu is a board-certified Harvard nutritional psychiatrist, professional chef, and nutritional biologist. She's the founder and director of the first and only hospital-based nutritional and metabolic psychiatry service in the United States. Dr. Uma serves on the faculty at Harvard Medical School, the Harvard Department of Nutrition, and is an instructor at the Cambridge School of Culinary Arts. Dr. Naidu frequently speaks at conferences around the world and is a regular contributor at CNBC, Harvard Health, Mind Body Green, Psychology Today, ABC, Live with Kelly and Ryan, and the Today Show. Dr. Naidu's book, the international bestseller, This Is Your Brain on Food, has been published in 22 countries and 18 languages. She's joining us today to talk about her new book, about the connection between food and the brain, and to share insights from Calm Your Mind with Food, a revolutionary guide to controlling your anxiety. Welcome, Dr. Uma. Thanks so much, Dr. Amy and Dr. Jody. It's great to talk to you both. Yeah, we are really excited. And, you know, our listeners are used to hearing us talk about nutrition, but yes. to have an actual expert in mental health and nutrition um, at the same time is really exciting to us. So tell us quickly, because I know we don't have a lot of time with you today, how you decided to, as a psychiatrist, also um, get formal training in nutrition. Why was that important to you? I came from a family that was very food-oriented and science-oriented, uh, cooking healthy foods, um, a lot of scientists in the family, physicians and Ayurvedic practitioners. So that was in kind of in my blood. It was, it was the way I was raised. And I noticed that when I was in uh, residency, no one, we were being taught to prescribe you know, psychotropic medications, which have side effects, but no one was discussing lifestyle measures to help the patient offset those side effects. And I thought that was a real gap. And a patient experience early in my career taught me that if you can interpret something to a, a patient, a person, they can actually use that knowledge. And it, I realized how powerful it was. So I really dedicated my career to developing that out, studying nutrition and integrating it in a way, because I feel that while medications have saved the lives of many of my patients. It's not the only route to feeling better in mental well-being. I love the idea that that gives the patient so much control over their situation. And um, it, I just think that that's a, so much of a better feeling than having to take medication, things like that. So let's get down to it. Tell um, how does eating impact how we feel? Talk about the brain gut or the, yeah, the brain gut connection. connection. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, so thank you. That's, that's always a great question. I, um, the gut and brain originate from the exact same cells in the human embryo. And then they divide apart to form these two organs. 
and then the gut and brain remain connected throughout our lives by the 10th cranial nerve, which is the vagus nerve, which allows for two-way text messaging of neurotransmitter information. So they, they're connecting around this, but you also have to understand that 90 to 95% of serotonin and its receptors are located in the gut. So when you think about the food that's being digested, it's interacting with microbes that are also dealing with serotonin production, serotonin receptors. It's all in the same environment. And we start to understand just like we might have a headache and swallow a Tylenol or headache pill and get relief for a headache, but we're actually swallowing the pill and it's going to our digestive tract. In a similar way, just like um, a headache pill will help the headache, which is usually in your neural tissue. Um, similarly, food actually, as it breaks down, also over time impacts our brain function. And it's something that has been a gap in our understanding until the newer science of the gut microbiome emerged. I love that analogy. That is something that we can really grab hold of, right? You take an aspirin, it goes into your gut and then impacts your neural tissue, right? That's how you get rid of the headache. So obviously, whatever we're putting in our mouths is going to the gut and is going to impact our brain in some way. That's right. That's exactly right. Okay. So I know that some food can get through the blood-brain barrier. Some things can't get through the blood-brain barrier. Can you talk to us about something called leaky gut and how how that is going to impact brain function? Yeah. Um, so leaky gut is something, uh, the me- medical term is intestinal permeability. And taking, back, taking us back to the discussion of the gut and the brain, say if I'm mostly eating fast foods, processed, highly processed foods, um, and sort of unhealthy foods, then the breakdown products of those foods are actually more damaging and toxic to the gut. Um, they can cause inflammation in the gut. They can lead to imbalance called dysbiosis, but they can also start to damage the single cell lining of the gut, which is very delicate. And when these more toxic breakdown products start to damage the gut, they can pierce it, and that leads to leakage. So it is literally a leaky gut. Um, unfortunately, with that comes other complications like inflammation in the gut can lead to inflammation in the brain. But it is an important thing for us to understand that the food we eat can directly impact that as well. So talk to us a little bit about those big impacting foods, gluten, dairy, sugar. Talk to us about how gluten, dairy, and sugar can have an impact on brain function. So in terms of sugar, let's start with one that's that's obvious. We know that sugar from fruit, from blueberries, some of my favorites, are not the same as, you know, candies and chocolate bars and cookies and that type of stuff. So we're talking about that form of sugar. And basically, sugar does a few different things. It taps into our dopamine receptors um, in the similar way that street drugs do, like cocaine. So when we consume a lot of sugar, we crave more sugar. And this is something that many people will talk about, but don't understand this actual uh, biochemistry and physiology behind it. So being aware of when and how we consume our sugar becomes really important for brain function because over time, sugar directly impacts neurons, um, damages them. So we want to you know, be, be mindful of where and how we are consuming our sugar. 
Uh, with gluten in mental health, some of the um, gluten uh, foods uh, actually can cause an uptick in, in anxiety. I think the quality of gluten is important. The source of the gluten is important. And the reason I say that is many people may eat bread, but if you're eating a, a slice of processed bread from the supermarket versus a an artisanal baked loaf of sourdough bread at a bakery, it, there could be a real difference. I also do a short-term elimination if someone is severely anxious or has symptoms where we suspect gluten is the culprit. Because some people, besides celiac disease, also may have non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So it's one of those things where we have to explore what's going on. Um, you know, it's not a leading food. I want people to get their whole grains in different ways, but they don't necessarily have to get it from gluten. Um, and the third one I think you mentioned was, was dairy. dairy. Mm -hmm. Right. So dairy in the way that... Um, milk is produced in this country can be can actually be very inflammatory for a lot of people. Um, one of the recipes I created in my new book, Calm Your Mind with Food, is one for hemp milk because it forms an alternative and it actually brings you short-chain omega-3s into your system. So it's pretty easy to do. But dairy on its own um, has can create several problems. I also, again, think it's the source of the dairy and the form of the dairy. I think if people can find um, sources of um, organic, um, you know, uh, uh, grass-fed things like kefir, which are fermented, plain, um, yogurt, that's Greek yogurt, that's plain, and grass-fed, and they can tolerate it, I think those are good options because the issues like getting fermented foods and probiotics become important. But often dairy can be just very inflammatory for people. So it's something that I offer as a suggestion, but, you know, with caution in, in certain, in certain groups. So if it creates inflammation in the body, your brain is part of the body. That's it. Exactly right. They're all connected, right? So because mental health is no longer just about the neck. And so if it's inflaming your body, inflaming your gut, that's why alternatives, if you consume dairy, some people stay away from it altogether. But if you do try for grass-fed and really be careful of the sauce that you, you get it from. You mentioned um, in one of your books, the difference between A1 and A2 proteins um, in dairy, and that sometimes it's the, it's the A1 protein that is the actual sensitivity, not lactose. Talk a little bit about right. that. So people may have seen, um, you know, milks labeled A2 dairy uh, in the supermarket, and that's because uh, perhaps the dairy industry has caught on to this fact. But specifically, the A1 milk caseins were thought to be problematic. So using products from A2 milk um, or nut milk or goats or sheep's milk, which is produced differently, may be helpful. Um, and that's because of what the research showed. So this may be an option for individuals who consume dairy and want to consume dairy, but have a problem with it. And uh, my, my clients have used A2 milk, are quite happy with it. They find it to be a useful solution. But again, we haven't researched just the A2 milk. If somebody is looking to make diet changes, what are kind of the behavioral manifestations that they can expect to see or what should they be looking for? 
You know, some of the first things, um, it's a marathon and not a sprint. So always forewarn people, we're going to do this slowly and steadily so it can be sustainable, right? Because if not a week later or a month later, all the things that they've given up, they just go back and eat more of. So it's it's a delicate balance of the psychological space and the psychology of eating as well as that. But one of the things, Dr. Jody, that I start with is something that's bothering the person. So often they'll come in to see me and they'll be concerned because they're now having post-pandemic continuing with a large bowl of ice cream every night. You know, during the pandemic, we had nowhere to go. So having a big bowl of ice cream was something a lot of people did. Now they can take a walk after dinner. They can do so much more. Um, but I start there because the the fact that they're aware of the issue, they, they're thinking about it, means that they're wanting, they're at least thinking maybe they could make a change. If I could work with them, to to find a suitable replacement for that habit. Um, so I, I have a recipe, and this is your brain on food for ice cream made from bananas. You can even make it a chocolate flavor. And it's a great option because you can still enjoy something that you were enjoying, but you can actually get your serving of fruit in. You can get the benefit from the extra dark natural chocolate. So it's start, it has to be a starting point that they that I feel I could work with them to really mobilize that change. And what I find they often will notice is improvement in sleep. They're waking up less anxious. Their mood is a little better or their brain fog is lifting. And the moment that those, those experiences and those uh, that transformation starts to happen, the individual wants to do like 10 more things because they already started to feel better. And that's when you can gain momentum with developing a more full and robust nutritional psychiatry plan. And you, you have a lot of recipes and alternative ways of making those favorites in your book, right? Yes, correct. I, I just think people need to have practical solutions and solutions that work and are easy for them. You know, they, we don't, we're not here to make souffle. We, we're really just here to eat healthy whole foods more often than not. So, um, you know, the, the right souffle and the right, uh, right meal could be delicious. It's not, it's not necessarily what I'm trying to convey to people. It's basic recipes that are interchangeable, flexible. You can add tofu or you can add chicken, but you can use the same spices, herbs, and vegetables to make the dish. And I think that that offers people more solutions to the problem. All right. So a minute ago, you mentioned omega-3s when you were talking about hemp milk, I think. Can you talk a little bit about the benefits of omega-3s um, for the brain um, in anxiety and ADHD or in mental health altogether? Why should we Why should we supplement with them? So omega-3 uh, fatty acids are found in um, lots of fatty seafood like salmon, anchovies, sardines, um, and they uh, they you know have been shown time and time again to be really great for the brain for brain health and actually often can be supplemental in in using to improve things like mental in mental health issues like depression and anxiety. Um, there are also plant based forms. The plant based or the short chain omegas like the ALA from hemp hemp seeds, flax seeds, walnuts, and more they are a little less efficient at reaching the brain but it's still a source of short-chain 
omegas. So I say to people, if you don't consume fish, um, certainly lean into the hemp milk and the hemp seeds and flax seeds and stuff, but you can also take an algal oil supplement made from sea algae. So that's that's plant-based for you. Um, and that just provides people with an option. But these are helpful substances that when we consume, actually reduce inflammation and are great for our body and brain. So what is your recommendation? How many milligrams a day do you recommend of omega-3s? So it depends if, you know, I'm a food first person. So I usually say to people, if you consume fish, maybe have a portion that's four to six ounces, about two to three times a week. Make sure that you're having balanced diet of other foods, lots of vegetables, always um, other healthy fats and food and um and healthy, you know, more complex carbs. So I usually go by the food, by sort of a food guide. And if you don't, uh, if you don't eat a seafood, then I would suggest that you add nuts and seeds to your daily meals, a salad, you know, top your chia pudding, um, add it to a smoothie, that kind of stuff. So you're consistently getting these in, in your diet. But if someone's taking a supplement, usually there are dosage recommendations around that. Based on the brand of the supplement. Often the brand of the supplement, and that's why, you know, you generally wanted to speak to your provider if you're thinking of taking it. Okay. What about turmeric? So turmeric is one of my favorite spices. Um, turmeric with a pinch of black pepper has really powerful antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties. It, uh, in studies, has shown to be helpful for anxiety. So if you don't cook with it, adding a quarter teaspoon with a pinch of black pepper to a super smoothie of tea can be very helpful. Uh, the black pepper, the pinch of black pepper, actually improves bioavailability of the turmeric by about 2,000%. So it's an easy hack that's really worth doing. And if you don't cook with it, you know, make sure that you can add it to other things. Um, it's it's certainly worth leaning into. And if you do cook with it, be careful because it does stain white white counters. So it's bright yellow and it does. Yes, my husband actually drinks uh, golden milk every night, turmeric mm -hmm. milk, and he spilled it on our white comforter because he drinks his, it's like a tea, he drinks it in bed as he reads at night and it's all over our white comforter. So you're absolutely right about it staining. <laughs> That's tough. That's hot. <laughs> <laughs> what do you got there, Jody? Well, if you, I mean, there is so much great advice for people who, I mean, this is such an exciting topic, I think, for people, again, that they have some control. Um, but for people who are looking to get started and maybe feel overwhelmed by all the information, how do you... How do you recommend that they get started? Um, should they see a professional? Should they get tested for something? Do they, or can they just experiment and play around themselves? Since it's food, it's pretty easy to try things on your own. I often think, Dr. Dodi, that, you know, someone say waiting to see a counselor, um, waiting to see a psychiatrist. These are things you can start doing because you can continue doing them throughout whatever else happens. Um, food is not at the point where it's prescriptive, but we have a lot of evidence that can guide, give us some guidance around what to do. So I usually suggest to people something kind of fun because it can involve the whole family. Um, I suggest that they have a vegetable challenge in their family. 
And why do I suggest it? Because vegetables are rich in plant polyphenols and fiber and multiple micronutrients that we need. But if you involve the family and you say, hey, let's challenge ourselves to eat this number of colors and that number of different vegetables this week, um, it becomes kind of part of a challenge. And remember, you can put five different types of lettuces and count, and count those for five. Uh, you know, so, so as long as it's different, you're bringing actually a biodiversity of foods to your microbiome, which is really important. But you're also adding in healthy whole foods to your diet. You're making more side vegetables. Uh, maybe you're adding more, more veg roasted vegetables to your salads. Maybe you're making a soup with them. And by all means, add in your clean proteins, your healthy fats, and everything else that you want to eat with it. But it's a good, it's a, it's an easy way to start. Um, the kids can be involved. They can help pick the different colors of the vegetables. They can help clean the vegetables. You know, they can wash the blueberries um, and do things that are easy for them. It involves them in the conversation, and it also conveys these are the foods we eat. You know, if your countertop is full of uh, cookies and crackers and candy, that's those are the snacks the kids are going to go for. But if you have apples, you know, clementines, extra dark chocolate, and hummus and and and, and celery sticks, that's a, that's a different makeup of the kitchen, right? And I'm not saying we should never eat a cookie. All I'm saying is it's conveying the message of healthful eating that uh, people get accustomed to. So two populations that we've worked with, both clinically and in research, are teens and older adults. And they are the most resistant to making changes in the diet, in my experience. Um, yeah. And especially with older adults who are not overweight, they have a hard time making that jump thinking, oh, well, I'm not overweight, so why do I need to change what I eat, even if it's for their brain function? And then teens are the exact same way, right? Like they'd rather do comfort food or fast food or sugary snacks that are like crack, mm. as you as suggested. <laughs> so what language can you offer for parents or uh, caregivers um, to help people understand how this is actually for their brain health as opposed mm -hmm. to their body? That's a great mm -hmm. And, you know, helping to unpack what I shared on the, on the gut brain connection and in a simple form that basically says, look, you take a headache pill, it works in your brain tissue. If you're eating junk food, if you're eating fast foods, those are the nutrients that are feeding your brain. Uh, compared to this apple, this piece of salmon, this um, baked tofu dish, whatever it is that you, your child might eat, having that direct conversation and making them understand that that connection exists. And if you want to be smart, if you want to be better at sports, if you want your skin to look good, um, you know, you want to be sharp for to be up to up to speed with your friends, uh, whatever it is as a parent that you recognize is important to them, to one kid, it'll be their skin, to another kid, it will be, you know, their height or their, their weight or, or something like that. Obviously, we want to encourage healthy habits. We don't want to, you know, indicate anything that's uh, conveying about negative body image or something. But the gut microbiome is in, 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 involved in all of these processes. You know, if we clean up our diet and eat more whole foods, you could actually improve your skin. Um, you know, you could uh, definitely improve your cognition. We know that fending off inflammation in the gut helps our memory, helps cognition over time. So I think it's almost 
as a parent, you may have to step back and and be thoughtful about how do I get this message across? Because if not, they're just going to say no. How is it going to appeal to them? You know, do they want to be smarter? Do they want to be better at sport? Do they, you know, you know, have skin that they want? They would like to see it clear up a little bit. Well, the 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 gut is involved in all of these things, and if you are feeding that gut French fries every day, then that's what's going to appear in your body in some way, shape, or form, even if you physically can't see it. Um, either in the form of weight or bad skin or, you know, um, just overall inflammation. I liked how you um, talked about a little earlier the vegetable challenge and um, having discussion around this topic um, as a family because there's so much busyness and distraction um, in our lives that sometimes we don't take a step back and actually think about how what we eat is feeling or affecting us. And so if you make it part of your daily discussion, I would imagine that that helps those populations pinpoint or understand how they're being helped by the diet that you're following. I I, I would like to hope so. And I think bringing that discussion is, is very important. You know, I was visiting with uh, friends overseas a few months ago and a young couple, um, decided that for their two toddlers, they were not going to keep processed foods at home. If they went to a birthday party and they got cupcakes and something else, that was fine. But at home, they were going to eat hummus and, you know, chickpeas and celery and all sorts of different foods, but actual food. And I observed these little kids because we were getting together to have a birthday party. So there was birthday cake and there was chocolate and candy everywhere. It was a typical celebration. These kids were running around playing. And they ran up to their mom, and I kid you not, they asked her for the celery and hummus that she brought for them. And they had little, um, they had these little yogurts, they put blueberries in and stuff like that. And one other snack that I got, oh, nuts, that, that she had packed for them, and then they could just pick what they wanted as they were playing. And it blew my mind. It absolutely blew my mind that in the face of all the stuff that they could have um, leaned into, they were making that choice. So I think it's it's also environmentally what we do. It's not that we have to exclude processed foods. I'm not trying to say that. There's also been this other discussion about if you exclude things, you form an eating disorder. That's really not how eating disorders are formed clinically. I think we know that. But I know people are fearful and they want to do the right thing. So um, I'm j- just by way of example, I think the environment counts and the discussion counts. And I'm not saying it's easy. I- I'm-, I'm sure you're going to hear a lot of no's um, or never's before <laughs> before you can impact the change. But we can persevere. But one step at a time, right? That's yeah. it. One step at a time. So um, Dr. Uma um, has to go. And so we're going to let her tell us um, about her newest book. Uh, We're going to let her go. And then Dr. Jody and I are going to continue the conversation with some practical tips on how to make some of these changes that Dr. Uma has suggested. So tell us about your new book. Thank you. So my new book is is called Calm Your Mind with Food. And it really is based on my work during the pandemic because what happened in my practice is I realized that just so many more people were anxious and it feels like anxiety is everywhere. Now, statistically, we know from um, a paper published in the Lancet Journal that anxiety is increased by 25% um, through the pandemic. So we know that it's so much more common than it was even pre-pandemic. It's always been the most common disorder in mental health in the United States. 
And now it's even worse. And I felt that people needed more tools in their toolkit. There's another study that showed that only 70% of people globally actually speak to a mental health provider. So there's so many of us that are never, either we don't have a provider, we don't have access, maybe we're not interested or haven't read, but, but there may be many reasons. And don't actually do that. So this book is meant to be a guide that any one of us can try because it's about food and try the habits, try the shopping list, the protocol, the recipes to start to feel better and have that additional tool in the toolkit. Maybe while you're waiting to see a counselor or get an appointment or maybe try to see if you can feel better. Um, obviously, if you are feeling more seriously anxious or suicidal or have very severe symptoms, then you need to be in an emergency room. But for the rest of us that are just, you know, trying to eat healthy and feel better through this time, it's a great way to get you started. I love that. So um, we have the links um, to purchase Calm Your Mind with Food and Dr. Uma's original book, This Is Your Brain on Food. Um, we, we have those links in our show notes as well as uh, Dr. Uma's social media links as well. Is there anything that you want to leave our listeners with that you didn't get to say? Um, I think just feeling uh, two things, actually. One, please follow my newsletter. And the reason is that I write about a new food every week uh, and give you tips about how to buy it and how to choose these things. And you can sign up at umanidumd.com. And I'd like people to remember that we do have the power at the end of our fork, and we just need to start using it. I love that. The power at the end of our fork. Fantastic. Uh, Dr. Uma Naidu, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Thank you so much. Guys, we're going to give you some additional tips. Thanks so much, Dr. Amy and Dr. Joe. I really appreciate it. I'm sorry about the time. We enjoyed having you. It was our pleasure. Thank you. Take care. I'll hop off. Thanks. Thank you. So, Dr. Jody, uh, we need to read a word from um, our sponsor. And then when we come back, let's dive in and see if we can come up with some practical suggestions for our listeners to uh, to use. All right. Um, Are you concerned about your child's reading or spelling performance? Are you worried your child's reading curriculum isn't thorough enough? Well, most learning struggles aren't the result of poor curriculum or instruction. They're typically caused by having cognitive skills that need to be strengthened. Skills like auditory processing, memory, and processing speed. Learning RX one-on-one brain training programs are designed to target and strengthen the skills that we rely on for reading, spelling, writing, and learning. Learning RX can help you identify which skills may be keeping your child from performing their best. In fact, we've worked with more than 100,000 children and adults who wanted to think and perform better. They'd like to help your child on the path to a brighter and more competent future. Give Learning RX a call at 866 Brain01 or visit learningrx.com. That's learningrx.com. Well, Dr. Uma was full of some super interesting uh, tips. So um, I think we should like dig in a little bit. I know that you mentioned how overwhelming it can be um, when someone says, hey, you should give up gluten and dairy and sugar all at once. Yeah. Um, and that's not super reasonable, to, especially if we're talking about kids, um, mm-hmm. to expect that. You know, we interviewed... Um, nutrition scientist Maddie Lansdowne a couple times on this show. And his um, advice is to make one tweak a week. 
he says that that is the most sustainable way um, to make changes in our nutrition, one tweak a week. So if I were going to make a suggestion for which tweak you should make first, I would say sugar. We talked with Dr. Uma about how sugar is inflammatory. And so if your body is inflamed, so is your brain. And so that one would be, although it's hard to give it up, I think we might see a big impact from uh, reducing sugar intake. What do you think? Yeah. If you were reducing sugar intake or you were meeting with somebody or talking with a friend about that, where would you start with that? Would you say just being aware of how much sugar you take in every day, reading labels, what what would make a difference for you? So what I have seen is the biggest source of sugar intake, sodas and sweet coffees. Mm-hmm. So many people drink sodas and then go through the Starbucks drive-thru and, you know, get their vanilla latte. And so... um that would be the first thing that I would suggest giving up. Um, and they do have um, soft drinks that are sweetened with stevia that you can get at Whole Foods or natural grocers or one of the health food stores as mm-hmm. a way of kind of scaling down the sugar intake if you feel like you still really need that. Now, I'm not a nutritionist. I'm just saying these are practical tips because I think ultimately – you want to train your brain not to crave sweets. And I think that even stevia sweet and soft drinks, while they're healthier, they're still going to create that sweet craving. But yeah. it would be one way to stop, kind of lower the temperature on the inflammation that the actual sugar causes. Mm-hmm. What would you do? What would I do? Um, I think I had to train myself to prefer water over anything else, you know, but it is really just getting in the habit of drinking it. And so setting a goal for myself with water, you know, two water bottles a day or two, you know, just starting with something that's reasonable and um, kind of challenging myself. Um, how do you feel about sugar substitutes? Like stevia is pretty natural. Um, I really, stevia gives me a funny aftertaste and can't drink it. So um, so I like xylitol, but I don't actually know how good it is for me. So I should educate myself about that. Yeah, like I, I so I'm pre-diabetic. And so I've read and read and read on, you know, what is the impact of sugar substitutes on the insulin response and the the research is so mixed right and so uh, it is my understanding that uh stevia does not impact blood sugar the way that um aspartame and and um splenda do but again i you know the the research isn't conclusive and so it's just hard to know i mean what what I got from Dr. Uma's books are that really your only source of sweet food should come from whole foods, which mm-hmm. are, you know, fruits. Yeah. I try to avoid artificial sweeteners at all costs, period. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Anything natural is going to be better than anything man-made, period. Right? Absolutely. I know. and But I'm guilty. I'm, I, bec- so here's my, here's the psychology in my brain. Um, I drink sugar-free vanilla lattes at Starbucks. 
<laughs> and I think, well, I'm not having sugar, so it's okay. Well, I know those artificial sweeteners are not good for my body overall. And so I'm working on it. I'm I'm working on the idea of just ordering a latte at Starbucks and not a flavored latte at Starbucks. Yeah. I'm working on it. Yeah. I think the other thing I do um, to start that is I just make my coffee at home and I know, I, I know, well, I know exactly what I like. So I always make it right, you know, <laughs> So otherwise my explanation is way too long for them what I want, but, um, and just scaling back by such minute amounts that I don't kind of miss it. And so I know at one point I was trying to give up caffeine. So I'd go like a half a cup less of coffee a day. Um, or half a cup more of decaf rather than regular coffee. And it took me probably six months to wean myself off of caffeine, but it was just by such minute amounts that I honestly didn't miss it. Um, but that's also kind of what I do when I'm trying to eliminate anything or cut back. Okay. Well, I think that's an amazing success story to just incrementally decrease what it is that you are trying to give up. So rather than your tweak being giving up that thing completely Uh a week, you just stepped down. Yeah. By such tiny little amounts that it just didn't make uh, an impact on me. Wow. And then replaced it with something else that, that made me happy you know? <laughs> and what was that? It really, I just love the taste of coffee. So I just supple- substituted it with decaf coffee. So Okay. Yeah. So um, I was reading about caffeine in Dr. Uma's original book. This is your brain on food. Yeah. And she talked about the research at that a hundred milligrams of caffeine doesn't have any impact on mental health that um, from 200 to 400 um, milligrams of caffeine. It w- the research was inconclusive. Some people it impacted their mental health. Some people it didn't. But once you reach that 400 milligram threshold, that is where the people in the research that she was quoting really saw uh, negative symptoms, right? Or saw some mental health symptoms, especially anxiety. So it was really impacting anxiety. And she said, so if you are drinking a venti latte from Starbucks, that's 475 milligrams of caffeine. If you suffer from anxiety, that's too much. You need to order a smaller drink so that you stay under that 475 milligram threshold or 400 milligram threshold. All right. So then I'm doing the math in my head. I drink close to 1500 milligrams of coffee a day. Now, I do not suffer from anxiety, but that can't be good. Like, I I, I had no idea. This is full disclosure here. I think I need to step that down a little bit. <laughs> well, I have a system for you. Um, for me, it wasn't necessarily the anxiety, but it was I could tell that I was getting dependent on it. So if I didn't have enough coffee in a day, I had spent the whole afternoon with just a splitting headache. Mm-hmm. And that can't, that's got to be my body telling me that that's not good for me. And so I, so that is, that was my, my impetus. That was my motivation to do that. Yeah. I mean, in coffee, Again, I don't suffer from anxiety, but coffee can wreak havoc on cortisol production. 
um, you know, which then pushes and pulls on insulin. I mean, it can do other, it can have other negative impacts, even if you don't feel it. And so I have ADHD. Um, and you know, I had a physician tell me 20 years ago to drink caffeine because, or coffee, because caffeine is a central nervous system stimulant. Well, so is Ritalin. And so it's a natural way, um, of kind of helping, uh, neurotransmitter function. But again, more doesn't necessarily mean better. Mm -hmm. One of the questions I wished I had time, and I don't know if you have an answer for this or not, but I wish I would have had time to ask Dr. Uma is if you have a child or you're an adult and you're taking medication to manage a condition like anxiety or ADHD or something like that, then where do you start? Then where does food fit into this picture is, and, and maybe, maybe you have an answer for that. Maybe yeah, she t- she actually talked about that um, in both of her books that um, nutrition is a complement to every other intervention. So whether that's a behavioral intervention such as therapy, whether that's um you know pharmaceutical intervention, um you know medications, that um, bringing that nutrition piece in will complement everything, mm-hmm. um, which I love, right? Which I talk about this all the time in ADHD, that nutrition is one part of how we approach um, reducing ADH symptoms, right? Sleep, stress management, mindfulness, cognitive yeah. training, yeah. nutrition. Um, and I think nutrition is something that can't hurt, but might help and might help a lot. So it is so worth exploring. Yeah. So I have a personal story that I'm happy to share. Um, I had started doing some research on gluten um, when I was diagnosed with celiac disease. um, And two of my children were diagnosed with celiac disease. And so um, when my middle child um, went off gluten after his diagnosis, his neurological symptoms went away. So he had been diagnosed with Tourette syndrome and anxiety disorder. And the ticks from the Tourette syndrome went away and his anxiety went away. And I said, holy cow, that can't just be from getting off gluten, can it? And so I started digging into the research and I read this really cool study that they had done on inpatients with schizophrenia. And they had put them all on this gluten-free diet and um, something like 80% of them walked out of the hospital symptom-free, medication-free after six weeks of being off gluten. So the neurological manifestations of gluten sensitivity are unreal. And so just to see that the research supported what I saw in my own family um, was amazing. And so that's why I started including that, you know, in the psychoeducation that I provide on, um, on ADHD that, Hey, you know, maybe a trial of getting off gluten might be a great way to start. Uh Uh-huh. Um, just a personal story also is I don't have celiac disease, but, um, when one of my kids was getting married, um, I was trying to fit into the dress that I bought for the wedding. And so went on this very restrictive diet just for a short period of time to get back into that dress. Um, but there was no gluten in the diet whatsoever. So, you know, it was just protein, vegetables, things like that, that were healthy, but not, there was no gluten. And so by accident, 
I recognized how much better I felt when I didn't have any gluten in my diet. And so I have always very much limited since that time, how much gluten I had and just feel better physically, sleep better, brain fog is better, things like that. And so um, it just was interesting that I fell into it by accident. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she talked about leaky gut. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, the protein and gluten actually is one of the biggest culprits in creating leaky gut. And so if you think of your that gut lining as having tight junctures that fit together like a puzzle. And so the protein and gluten starts to kind of weaken those junctures and it creates openings then for, you know, bacteria and toxins to leak through. Mm -hmm. And so um, you don't have to be celiac for that, for gluten to have that impact on those tight junctures in the gut. And once we wrap our brains around the idea that what we eat absolutely impacts our brain. I loved her analogy. Yes. 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 I had never thought of that before and I might have to borrow it. <laughs> I think she probably put it out there for you to take. <laughs> <laughs> well, she talks a lot in her book about the Mediterranean diet. Uh, mm-hmm. That is the, that is how she promotes nutrition, mental health. Um, so listeners, if you, um, are interested in them learning more um, about nutritional psychiatry, the food mood connection, the gut brain connection. Um, be sure to check out uh, Dr. Uma Naidu's uh, book. That's N A I D O O. Again, we put all those links in our show notes for this episode. Got anything else for us, Dr. Jody? Uh, the thing I loved about Dr. Uma's book too, is that all of that is based in research. And so it's not just, you know, I tried to fit into my wedding dress and couldn't. So, um, it, but it's really based on research and yeah. it's great to see. It's just really cool to, to think about the impact that that can have. Absolutely. Cool. So, thank you so much for listening today. Um, if you liked us, Um, please leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on social media at The Brainy Moms if you would rather watch us. We are on YouTube under that same handle. Um, And that's all the smart stuff that we have for you today. So we're going to catch you next time. All right. Thanks, Dr. Amy. Thanks, Dr. Jody.